out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Happy Mondays because I spoke to bass player Paul Ryder to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview. And um, yes, we'll just get straight into it. So look, after several minutes of casual chat that gets edited out, we get down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Paul, it's over to you. Oh yeah, just to say, we were born in the same year, so um, that's why his response is slightly similar. Well, not similar, but um, yes, you get the gist anyway. Paul, take it away. Musical, similar to you, actually. I was into the sweet. Um, I was into Slade. Um, I liked a bit of mud, good old rock and roll. Um, but my first album I ever bought was um, was Pinups by Bowie. God, and uh, I didn't realise at the time. I didn't know at the time that all those songs on Pinups are cover versions. Yes. Um, it, it took me took me like another 10, 15 years to realise, oh, they're all cover versions. By... So I was exposed to Bowie's, Bowie's album, Pinups, but, but all these other bands that had wrote these songs. So I was exposed to, to, to the small faces and, and people like that. Yes. Uh, but the glam thing was, uh, glam thing was really big. Uh, and Bowie was really big. I, I, I remember seeing David Bowie doing Starman on Top of the Pops when I was, think it was nine, eight or nine, and he had this blue, blue acoustic guitar, and he just blew me away. He blew me away, and his blue acoustic guitar blew me away. You know, and that's when I was like nine years old. Yes, well, that was it. And what were your, what were your, because I came, you know, from the middle of the countryside in East Anglia, so, you know, frankly. Cool. All right culture wasn't really sort of going to happen that much my parents they were very working class so when they got married in the 50s you know that was one of those families where you know a couple where you just sold all your possessions because you never had debt or never borrowed money you know it was that kind of generation but they were were slightly into Elvis and and Teresa Brewer and and sort of country they liked a bit of country what were your kind of family parents into well um rock and roll my dad was a t- teddy boy um, with his flick knife and his DA haircut, and my mum was a teddy girl. Um, and their record collection um, was uh, Buddy Holly, Elvis, Stones, The Beatles, Fats Domino, Chuck Berry. So it was more or less rock and roll, really. God, that's so hip and happening, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and did you have a record player in the house at the, at the time? We did. We had a dance set. You know, the, the square box where you lift it up and it's got a speaker in the front. Yes. So, yeah, we had a dance set. And but my parents had a lot of 78s as well. And this dance set played 78 um, revolutions per minute records. And it also played uh, LPs. So um, we used to put on these old 78s of, um, of uh, or what's he called, Marody's Cousin, um, oh, Grey Balls yes. of Fire. Jerry Lee oh. Lewis. 
Jerry Lee Lewis. They had a load of Jerry Lee Lewis because he'd actually played piano like Jerry Lee Lewis, or he could before he died, uh, before my dad died. But yeah, we had loads of Jerry Lee. My dad could play piano. Um, he, he could play anything, really, my old fella. He, uh, so he was really quite a musical chap. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was in bands when he was at school. He was in, he was in a couple of rock and roll bands. Yes. He used to go around the classrooms doing uh, Elvis songs. Right. Did he have a good voice? Yeah. Yeah. He had a better voice than Sean. Yeah, <laughs> 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 so in tune. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, well, absolutely. Because my parents, when they had, well, not me, but the first two, my brothers who are a bit older, they were very young. How old were your folks when they, they started having children? Uh, 21. Yeah. They got married. 21 and had the first at Sean not long after. So it was very kind of, young. I know. Yeah. It's very different in those days, wasn't it, really? Very so, different. So, what was your 70s like? Because obviously, being from 64 that year, you know, punk, mm-hmm. you were very young when punk happened. Were you, had yeah. you had that sort of come onto your radar at all? Punk, definitely, yeah. Punk, I was like, I would have been. 11, 12, 13, 14. Um, and that's a really, you know, 13 and 14 getting into music is um, very influential. You know, a lot of punk bands coming out when I'm 13 and 14 years old and it's just new music. And um, it was a kick in the, uh, it was kicking the balls to what, for a lot of people. Seen all this, these new bands coming out. Yes. In yes. Well, well, you were lucky because my brother, who was seven years older, who I worshipped at the time, was really into prog rock. So I got into Yes, Genesis, and Wishbone Ash, Barkley, James Harvest. Check. Ah, <laughs> ah. My mate, who I've just connected, I've just connected with him again from school, was into prog rock, and he's still into his prog rock. Yeah. He doesn't like the Mondays. He likes me, but he doesn't like the Mondays. But he still loves his prog rock. Yeah, there was. He didn't. My brother didn't have one seven-inch single. It was all albums or nothing. It was just like really serious music. And you'd oh, have the wow. plastic. You'd buy those plastic sleeves to go over the album, the vinyl record. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Twelve pence <laughs> for Virgin Records. It was true, actually. So when did you pick up a musical instrument? Um, probably punk days. 13, 14. Um, I actually went to see Thin Lizzy at Manchester Apollo when I was 14. And, um, you know, I think that concert changed my life because it was like a singing bass player. I'd never seen, only seen Susie Quattro before as a singing bass player. Uh, And then I saw Philip Liner with Thin Lizzy and it was like, wow, that bass sounds great. I want to play one of them and he looks cool. Yeah, you know, and, uh, and it was it was after that concert that I decided to get a bass for Christmas. So, so were, you, were you were you early? Because de- I was a late de- I was a late developer. Were you going to gigs uh, at a very early age? Yeah, yeah, especially because Sean was like nearly three years older than me, and he'd left school, and he was working in Manchester City Centre as a messenger boy delivering telegrams. So he was getting all concert tickets and taking me. I remember him saying, do you want to come and see the Ramones? And it was like, yeah, of course you do. So he brought us two tickets and there was his band 
supporting them that I'd never heard of, which I thought was better than the Ramones. And that came, they turned out to be Talking Heads. Right. So the Talking Heads was supporting the Ramones. And um, yeah, Sean was getting all these ticket concert tickets because he was, he was working in the city centre and uh, taking his little brother along with him. My God, that must have been mm. quite nice. So were they just two of you in the family? Yeah, just me and Sean. Blimey, you didn't have the tricky middle son, did you? Or your family? No, <laughs> no, we didn't, we didn't go down that route. That was quite fortunate, really. Because yeah, my my middle brother's got a bit of a chip on his shoulder. Let's not go there. <laughs> but <laughs> so, did you always feel? Did you always feel very protected? Did were you? Did you feel like you were very protected by Sean? Um, yeah, in some ways, it was protected by him, and um. You know, I didn't hang out with him that much because, you know, he, he, when he's off working, when he's working with men and I'm still at school, you know, he, the, the age gap becomes quite big. Yes, uh, yeah, true. Uh, but it was good of him to take me along to the concerts. Yes. So as, as, as we trot through the sort of the 80s, obviously you were 16 in 1980, which was, which mm -hmm. is, I'm doing the maths here. Actually, I was the uh, same age, so I can do this quite. Did you leave school at 16? I left school at 16, yeah. In fact, I didn't go in for the last the last 12 months of school. I only went to do exams. I'd got myself a job in, um, I got myself a Saturday job in a clothes store in Manchester. Um, and the last year of school, I, 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 was, I was more in the clothes shop working than I was at school. Yes. Well, yeah, by 15, it was out and about in Manchester as well, Blimey. working on exams and, and then wagging in school and working during the week as well. Yes, and how, was your, how were your exam results? Um, two O-levels, a couple of uh, GCSEs, was it? You got an O-level in metalwork and an O-level in art. Nice. So I got I... two O-levels. Brilliant. Practical, practical mm -hmm. subjects. I did woodwork. I got, you know... I did not pass. I was not good at woodwork. We were very, from a working class family, going to one of these sort of secondary modern schools, they didn't really care about exams. They kind of wanted you, wanted you to leave as soon as you could, really, and just get you out of the school. So it wasn't yeah. anything exciting. So were you picking up on that exciting scene that was happening in Manchester with bands like the Nosebleeds? Was it the, or Slaughter and the Dogs? No, the Slaughter and the Dogs, Ed Banger and the Nosebleeds, uh, a band called The Pan. They was really good. Um, they had a single out called the Ranch Bar, and Ranch Bar was a punk club in 70, 78. Um, so yeah, Ed Banger and Nosebleeds, Slaughter and the Dogs, The Panics. Um, yeah, I was into all that stuff, especially because yeah. Sean was a few years older and he was buying all that stuff as well. Yes. And when did you, mm. did you, when did you first bump into Morrissey on the streets of Manchester? Morrissey? Oh, man. Um, I met Johnny Marr before I met Morrissey. No, actually, I met Andy Rock before I ever met, uh, came in contact with Morrissey. Um, what year would that have been, the Smiths? That was 80... 82, 83. 82, 83, yeah. Yeah. Yes. So I, went out, I went out and bought this charming man on 12 inch. I think I've still got it at my mum's house. 
Excellent. Well, that's mm. a, great, a great single. So when, mm. you know, because it's interesting, you, we had the punk period and then that post-punk world of, you know, all those bands like Wire and Gang of Four, Magazine, Peel. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then for me, 83 to 87 is the indie years with because it was the Smiths let's face it and things mm -hmm. really changed in that period so what were you doing in that time because because also just at that sort of you know Thatcher gets in 79 early 80s you know lots of unemployment and the Job Seekers Alliance and Enterprise Alliance scheme so lots of people that I've interviewed who went into bands you know claimed the doll when we're on the Job Seekers Alliance what was your sort of first few years of the 80s like? Uh, up until 80, 83, I was still working at the post office. So was Sean uh, in 83. And I think in 80, late 83, we went on the Enterprise Allowance Scheme. Thousand pound in a bank account. <laughs> 25, 25 pound a week. You got a 10, 10 pound extra and you didn't have to sign on, which mean, meant you could go off and do gigs and stuff. The Enterprise, yeah. A month, you had 12 months to make something of your business, you know. So it was like, okay, we've got 12 months. Um, I think we need to get a record deal as we're going to be fucked. So uh, <laughs> within 12 months, we, we were signing with Factory Records. Yes. So you, you formed in 1980, didn't you, the band? It was about 81, yeah, 81. Talking about forming a band in 80, 81, and then finally getting it together um, in 82, 83. Finally getting it together. We, we, the last person to get we got was uh, Gary Whelan, the drummer from the Mondays, and he was still at school. You know, he was, he was only just 15. Um, he came down for an audition, and it was like, okay, um, you can play drums, but you, you, you dress well, you got a good jumper, you got a good pair of shoes, you got a good pair of pants on, you're in the band. Learn these songs for next week. So his mum let him have, have a week off school so he could learn three songs. So yeah, that was, that was at 83. Who was the musical kind of director, the, the driving force with the band? Who knew how to put a song together? It was all just a learning curve, really. It was, um, we only had one, one one rule and and that was if it's if these songs start to sound like anyone else then we'd scrap the song you know if we started to sound like the smiths we'd scrap it start to sound like new order or joy division would scrap the song but it, it had to be original yeah the only rule. if we started to sound like anyone then we'd scrap the song and was there a particular person within the band who had the good ideas you know, was there kind of that, that dynamic or was it pretty even? Well, nothing, I don't know how this happened, but like nothing would ever get done unless there was a baseline first. Right. So it was, it was down to me to come up with a baseline and then we'd work, we'd work around that. Yes. And most bands, when they start, you know, they, they in a good way, you know, slightly plagiarised. Was there any bands, oh, no, I know you just said you did, but was there any bass lines that you thought, oh, actually, I'm slightly taking that one, that can be, that can be the bass, you know, basic kind of rhythm of this, this song? Um, I was heavily influenced by Echo and the Bunnyman. So a couple of the songs, a couple of their, their songs, I did completely rip off. 
Um, but they never made it onto vinyl or, or, or onto record. But I've still got um, cassette tapes of these early stuff. Excellent. That's yeah. good. That's good. And um, did you all, I mean, did you get any lessons? You know, because I always think it's it's amazing how people just go, oh, yes, I was just, just got a, you know, musical instrument and started playing. I think, God, how do you just go from that to making a song? Because it's quite a process. Yeah. I had one bass guitar lesson and I, I only had it, um, I think it was a Wednesday night or Thursday night. And I had it once. And it was at the same time as Top of the Pops was on. And then the following week, it was like, well, I'd rather watch Top of the Pops and have a bass lesson. <laughs> so I never had any more. I just had the one. The one <laughs> I learned more off Top of the Pops. Yes. And did it, was it an instrument you just fell in love with? Yeah. Yeah. It, it kind of came natural, really. Because it, kind of, it was also... The bass lines. I was listening to a lot of Motown when I was uh, when I was like nine and ten and eleven. Because my mum's cousins, um, they were slightly older than us, and they was all into Motown and Northern Soul. Right. So they used to come round to our house with their, with a little box of seven inch singles, so they could play the music loud because their parents wouldn't let them play it loud. But if they came round to Auntie Linda's house, which is my mum, they could. They could turn the volume up, so I was exposed to a load of Motown as well. Yes, absolutely. And, and did you and were your parents kind of pretty amazed to see their two boys kind of in a band? You know, let's face it, you weren't quite the Osmonds, but you know, that was quite impressive. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think after we played at Wembley, um, my dad turned around and said, "Well done, you've done it. You know, you've done Wembley." So uh, I think there was really, I, I, my mum's really proud. She's got all the gold discs, gold, silver and platinum discs all over her living room wall. I'm not surprised. That is quite something, yeah. isn't it? It's better than having yeah. flying swans on the wall, isn't it? Really? <laughs> so, like I said, I did, did they have those up north or was it just a sort of thing that people had in East Anglia? The flying swans? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely had them up north. I thought it was an Arden thing. <laughs> <laughs> On Coronation Street, she used oh, to have flying swans. Oh, it was just dreadful. So when, you know, so you got, when did you get a, a, the, the signing of Factory Records? Did that happen quite quickly? Um, with Factory, it was, it was over that 12-month period while I was on the Enterprise Allowance Scheme. But before that period, I sent off cassette tapes to every major label going. And uh, I think it was about 15 and every other record label going. I think about 15 or 20 separate cassettes went off to A&R departments. Um, I've still got every rejection letter. Ooh. Every <laughs> rejection letter, all the majors and all the little ones. It was like, uh, this is good, but it's not for us. You know, no. and they kept all the letters. Still got them at my mum's house. Yeah, don't don't let go of that anger. But um, when was the first gig in London? Well, outside Manchester, and and also what was the first gig in London? Okay, do you know who got into the Mondays first? Was the Scottish Glasgow? Glasgow got into the Mondays early, really early on, and also Leeds. Um, yeah, Yorkshire and Glasgow, was, we, we could pull more people in Yorkshire and Glasgow than we could in Manchester. 
Right. Yeah. And then the first one in London would have been in the upstairs of a pub called the Black Horse in uh, around Euston Way. Um, Jeff Barrett, who went on to form Heavenly Records, um, he put he put he was putting nights on in this pub, and it was um, it was a big deal because he was going down to London. You know, I was how are people in London going to connect with us? You know, a bunch of scallies. You know, we didn't, wasn't wearing winkle picker black boots and skin tight pants. We were just dressed like your everyday uh, football fan. Yeah. You know, so it was a bit, um, you know, it was a bit exciting seeing how, the, how these people would react to us. And did and you look- feel like quite a gang, like The Clash did and people like that, and The Smiths, I suppose? Did it feel like you were, you know, the mafia? Yeah, we're definitely a gang. We still are a gang. Definitely a gang mentality as well. Yes. No one can touch us. We're fucking invincible. But you are at that age, you know. Absolutely. You you can bounce very well, isn't it? When Mm -hmm. was the first time you met Alan McGee? Oh, God, I've known Alan since probably, probably 85, 86. Uh, That's how long I've known Alan. Um, he was doing well with his record label um, and I just he used to come up to Manchester every weekend to go to the Hacienda you know and I've met him a few times down in London and all of a sudden he's, he's, he's like a regular at the Hacienda he rented himself a flat in Manchester lived in London during the week did all his business and came up to Manchester at weekends and that's, um, that's how I really got to know him that would have been 80, oh, God, I'm bad for years, 87, something yeah, like that. Mm. Because one thing what was amazing, a few years ago, Cherry Red Records brought out one of those compilations they loved, and they did one on Liverpool, and they had one on Manchester, which was seven CDs, you know, all, oh. you know, like, I don't know, hundreds of songs. Did you feel, being from Manchester, that they, they, that they were just like, a massive scene going on because look i come from norwich we had the farmer's boys the higson serious drinking you would not really make much money on that would you as a compilation no <laughs> we do, you know it's not a it's not a band sort of place is it but you know when i look at those kind of compilations and especially manchester it's a little bit annoying because you think christ how, how come you had so many bands i mean where did everyone rehearse and manage to get their first gig um oh wow there was no no rehearsal space in the city centre like there is these days. It was all on the... Uh, most bands came from South Manchester, which was Didsbury and Charlton and Hume and, and all that side. Like, the only other band I'd known from, from Salford was the Salford Jets, which was DJ Mike Sweeney. So there's no rehearsal rooms in the city centre. It was all either on the south side of Manchester or there'd be an old mill somewhere in Salford that somebody had converted a room and put some electricity in there. Um, you know, quite run down. You'd, you'd be rehearsing next to uh, an illegal chicken fight or an illegal cock fight or some illegal boxing ring that was going on. You know, so it's... Um, or until the late years, people started, um, especially um, the guys from the Broadwalk, Colin Sinclair and his dad, re, uh, re, 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 
redoing these uh, this old school into rehearsal rooms. You know, I think right. I think yeah. it was the first to get rehearsal rooms in the city centre. Yes, because I, I did an interview with a, a, one of the singers or the singer from a band called the Magic Roundabouts or Magic Roundabout, who only put out a few singles and they mentioned that they they were rehearsing in the, that sort of uh, estate, you know, Hume, is it Hume? Mm -hmm. and, yeah. um, and they mentioned that they were they were just about to rehearse and then she said, the Happy Mondays walked in and said, no, you've got to go into the other room and they all had to just trudge off. <laughs> Can you, so oh. Was that quite a place to go for bands to rehearse in the early days? Yeah, definitely. There's a place called, uh, one of the other early places was Spirit Studios. I think it's now a recording school. Um, but they had like four rooms. This was in the city centre before the boardwalk. Um, this was in the city centre and I think they had four rooms, but you had to wait like two weeks to to get in there because everyone wanted to go in there um but yeah this that was a great place yes absolutely and we i mean there was all yeah anyway there's enough about all the bands in manchester so your first <laughs> kings of the song mm. but yes so 86 you get your first john peel session don't you which must have felt like because because the 80s and i'm sure the 90s were a bit like this as well they you know we had the gatekeepers didn't we You had three music papers weeklies mm -hmm. american yeah go blimey that's lucky and we had john peel who and also janice long and kid jensen mm -hmm. but john peel was definitely somebody who if he played something you would at least um appeal to a few geeky people like me so how did you manage to get that little gig um we had by then we got a record plugger down in London, she was called Nikki Kafalis, and she was good friends with uh, John Peel, and she got us our first play with the with the new twelve-inch single that we brought out, the delightful EP, um, and he played that on his show. I remember us all sitting in my Ford Escort waiting for it, listening to John Peel on the radio in the car, listening, waiting for our song to come on, and. Uh, you know, everyone cheering when he came on. And a couple of weeks after that, he invited us down to uh, a first John Peel session. Yes. And did you have, De um, was it Dale Griffith or was it? Dale Griffin, yeah, that was it. It was the drummer in Motley Hoople. Yes, that's the man. Yeah. Yes. And how did and going, you... Going back to the Hicksons, Charlie Hickson was in the Hicksons, right? It was his band. Yeah. Comedian. Yeah, okay, I thought, I thought I'm good on music trivia. <laughs> yeah, it is, though. Um, yeah. So there you go, Dale Griffith. And did you have a good experience down there? Because you, the one song that really sort of, I remember John Peel playing, so I can remember this well, because I never listened to John Peel live. I'd always <clears throat> put a TDK D90 cassette in and record it, and then you kind of mm -hmm. had to listen to it a few times before certain songs kind of, I don't know. I know, when yeah. you listen to new music at once it's quite overwhelming but anyway it was freaky dancer can you remember how that song got to get um how that became a track yeah that was um was listening to a lot of sign the family stone and um um kind of came from there with a the wah wah guitar uh, i mean the bass line came first which was which is me trying to copy a um Boz Skaggs song. Boz Skaggs, I can't remember the name of the song, but I was trying to copy a bass line of his and it turned into Freaky Dancing. And Mark put the wah-wah guitar on because he was listening to a lot of Sly and the Family Stone. 
and uh, and Sean even took his lyrics from Sly and the Family Stone. The, the opening line is, one child grows up to be somebody you just love to murder or something like that. So, yes. yeah, that, that came about through listening to, the, to uh, a bit of Boss Gags and Sly and the Family Stone. Yes, that's a family affair, isn't it? Yeah, that's the one. Grows up to be somebody you love to hate. Yeah, that's the one. That's, that's the one. one. Quite a lyric, isn't it? But yes, mm-hmm. then the album you get John Cale, which did that feel slightly overwhelming having a member of the Velvet Underground coming in and saying, "Yes, I'll produce your first album." Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the first time we'd all been away from home as well. Like we we went down to London uh, to record the album in um, in. Where was it? Um, Kentish Town. In Kentish Town, uh, we all stayed in this. We stayed in this house, like with these massive bedrooms. But all the other bedrooms were Geordie builders that was working on working on building sites down in London, and we we're just plotted up in two bedrooms between us. We all had to share. So it was the first time we've been away from home. Um, living with a load of Geordie builders uh, and then during the day and night we, we was with John Cale out of the Velvet Underground. Yes. Incredible. It was. Well, he, he, he taught us a lot about um, um, a lot of it was recorded live. You know, he it, it, spent, spent the first four days recording us live. Then we listened back to him. And then he'd say, okay, play that one faster. And he'd make us play it faster and faster and faster until we finally got the tempo that he was into. Um, but yeah, it was John Cale from the Velvet Underground. I can't believe it. Yes. So who was the person who managed to pull that one? That was Phil Sachs, the Monday's first manager. He was um, he was he was managers, managing us for quite a while. And he was um, he was friends with Mike Pickering, who was the A&R guy at um, Factory. And between them, they came up with the idea of John Cale from Velvet Underground. And uh, I think his payment was £5,000 plus two airline tickets from New York to uh, England. That's how much we paid him. God, that's a bargain, yeah. isn't it, really? God. Yeah. And when you kind of heard the the final product, did you were you pleased with it? Yeah, really pleased, really pleased. Because yeah. because the songs had changed slightly as well. Like I say, he made made us play most of them faster than what we'd already written them at. So it was a nice and nice and refreshing for us. Because some of those songs, you know, was a couple of couple two and a half years old. We've been living with them for two and a half years. set of ears on them yes actually your hand has just gone over the microphone slightly of the, oh, the, the there you go. that's better yes but then interesting enough 87 the following year the smiths break up and then loads of those indie bands that we loved back in those in that time they all kind of decided to break up because most bands have a five-year narrative don't they they get together they have that 12 months honeymoon 
John Peel, yeah. you know, plays them session. First album, things are looking vaguely good. Second album, by then, they're a bit fed up with each other. And there's no... Mm -hmm. And also, scenes change. So by 87 and 88, you know, like, Ecstasy comes along. And, and all those bands, like, like I mentioned, you know, the indie bands, that, mm -hmm. you know, like Yeah, Yeah, No, and the Wolfhounds, People like that all, all starting to sort of say, actually, we've just had enough of it. But so when you went to do your next album in 88, did you feel that it was a tr strange kind of period for you guys to um, think about where to go next? Um, not just because of all them bands that you, you, that you just spoke about, they was all splitting up. It kind of like left the door open for us, you know, it was like, Every other week there was a, there was bands breaking up and you think, you know, oh wow, they broke up. Oh, they broke up. Oh man, they broke up. And it was just just like leaving the door open for us. Yes. Yeah. But you had sort of you you had sort of stamina though, didn't you, with the band be, to to keep going? Because not many bands, you know, like like I said, you know, doing all these interviews, most people after five or six years have just like, I've just had it, you know. Whereas you you started in the early eighties and were still you know, you know, we went on for the next decade, but I just was just wondering how that felt as 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 scenes change and people started getting older. Whether you were feeling a bit burnt out or whether you're just feeling like, no, we're just we're we're able to make the change. We're still going to mm -hmm. we're going to take different drugs now and we're going to make a different album. Yeah, well, the, we always wanted to be our albums to be completely different from the one we'd just done, and you hit the nail on the head there with different drugs. You know, um, but yeah, we had the stamina. We was like, what else are we going to do? You know, we either go back on the dole or I don't know, maybe I'd have gone backpacking around the world if the band hadn't have made it. But um, we was all determined to carry on and, and um, just take it as far as we could take it. Yes. So with the second album, you had another famous producer, didn't you? Martin Hannett. Martin Hannah, yeah. And what was that experience like? In the in the studio, it was freezing cold. He had the AC on zero. That's why they called him Martin Zero Hannah, because he had the AC on zero. It was freezing. Everyone had. It was summertime. It was freezing. Everyone had big coats on in the studio because it was so cold. Martin had it so cold in there. Um. But yeah, he was great as well. You know, it was like, he's just, um, you know, sad that he died so young. Sad yes. Yeah, yeah. And how important is the producer for an, for an album? I mean, is it the case that you could have given, you, you could have been doing that album with a different producer and it would have been a very different vibe or is it, would it have still sounded pretty much like it did? Well, actually, Bond was the only album we've ever demoed. We did, we did demos of it in Manchester before we before Martin got his hands on it, and um, I only wish I had one of those demo tapes now because it was sounding pretty good, it was sounding pretty good at demo stage, and then Martin Martin sprinkled his dust on it. Um, he did his fairy dust, didn't he? He did his fairy dust, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember the trogs that moment? Sprinkle some fairy dust on it. Because so in was it eighty-eight then that you supported New Order on their technique tour? Because that was kind of their arena tour, wasn't it? Yeah, it would have been. I think we'd supported them quite a few times before that though. Um 
I know one of them was Macclesfield Civic Centre. Um, did we support them at the Hacienda? I'm not sure if we supported them at the Hacienda or not. But we and oh, and we've done some in Scotland as well because New Order was big in Scotland. Yes. Like I said earlier, the Scottish was the first to get onto the Mondays. Scottish and the, and the Yorkshire, Yorkshire lads. So I think we'd already supported New Order a couple of times in Scotland. Yes. Mm -hmm. Your finger's gone back over the mic. Oops. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. So then, as the, as the decade sort of rocked on, because that year, I do remember the charts came out, you know, the albums of the year, and Bummed was kind of, everyone loved it, didn't they? I remember Johnny Marr made it his album of the year. Lots mm. of people. So you must have been incredibly pleased with the response it got. Yeah, it was like like the Mondays, early Mondays, was like, we was, we was a musician's band. So many other musicians was into us and into what we was doing. It was like saying we're, we're, we really like the Mondays, but we're musicians that I really appreciated. Yeah. You know, like, like uh, Ian McCulloch was a big fan. Um, Johnny, uh, Edwin Collins was a big fan, and I was a big Orange Juice fan back in the day. I was, uh, I, and, and the postcard record label from Scottish bands, yes. you know. Um, so it was, it was like the Mondays was a musician's band. A lot of musicians seemed to like us. Yeah, absolutely. Because then it was that period when I was desperately going to Glastonbury every year trying to find some cosmic ley line and mm. going to the Pyramid stage. And you, you played Glastonbury, was it 1990? 1990, yeah. Yes. Yeah. What's your memory of that? Chaos. Chaotic. We was there for, I think we plotted up for four days, two days before we should have played, and then two days after we played, we had this, uh, we had, uh, and that was the time we had, uh, um, colour scanners had just come out, you know, um, these, these new laser scanners. And we got our hands on one of these laser scanners and, and bootlegged our own tickets and backstage passes. So backstage for four days was like probably like 200 Mancunians just wandering around completely out the faces, um, all on fake passes. God, can you remember much else about it or was it just a blur of ecstasy and drugs? Just, uh, it was a big blur. It was a big blur, yeah. <laughs> Yes, I do remember seeing it. But you did have, by then, the Mondays had become a major player, hadn't they? They were sort of, I'm not sure, was it, were you headlining the pyramid stage? I, I we headlined it, yeah. Yeah, we headlined it. We'd become regulars on top of the pops. Yes, absolutely. That was good. So then the 90s came in, and this is where the Mondays absolutely do the business, isn't it, really, during the sort of mm -hmm. the pop period. So when you mm -hmm. started writing for the next album, Drills, bills. What was mm -hmm. the process of that? Um, we just got our new rehearsal room up in Stratford, and we was writing for an album. Um, but in between that writing period, we got asked by Electra, which is our American record label, to do a uh, to do a song for their fortieth anniversary. CD collection, uh, and that's where Step On came about. They paid for us to do Step On, 
and uh, halfway through the recording session it was like this is too good to go on a compilation album in america we're going to put this out as a single um which they let us do you know they said and that was with oakenfold and osborne that was our that was our um testing ground to see if we'd, we'd work well with them um and after the after the success of step on it was like yeah definitely getting them two to do the album steve Steve Osborne and Paul Oakenfold. And we went to, um, we recorded that in Capitol Studios in LA. And we went out there with four half-written songs and we wrote the rest in the studio. Blimey, you were you were mm. on a creative. Looking back at that period, was the band just gelling very well? Oh yeah, yeah. Everything was, all, everything was aligning really well. All the stars was lining up. The stars. I know, it does happen, mm. doesn't it? There are times. It does. It doesn't mm -hmm. happen for many fans, but it does. And you always had 10 tracks on an album, didn't you? Oh, I've never noticed that. <laughs> never noticed. Did you just think, let's keep it easy, five, five tracks on each side? Because that album yeah. is kind of almost perfect, isn't it? It does work as a whole piece of work. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. Isn't it's, um, I, I hadn't listened to it for a long time, up until a couple of years ago when we was doing the Pills and Thrills 30th anniversary or something like that and it was like wow it really does stand up well they are good good crafted songs yes absolutely and then there was also this love affair with donovan wasn't there yeah yeah that was another one that was uh from childhood um my parents had donovan records and um you know, eventually I ended up going out with his daughter. Sean ended up going out with his other daughter and having a child with her. You know, and Don became a really good friend. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And did you meet him much? Oh, yeah, yeah. I used to go and stay at his house in Ireland all the time. My God, I bet he told you lots of stories about the Beatles, didn't he? He loves the anecdote. Oh, yeah, he loves it. Yeah, yeah. He wrote the, he wrote the line, um, Sky of Blue, Sea of Green. But Yellow Submarine, he wrote that line. He, I remember him telling me that story. <laughs> <laughs> I've, heard, I've got some friends who are huge Donovan fans, and actually they found mm. when they went to see him live, he, they did sort of by the end, they said that his stories between the songs began to get you slightly exhausted, you know. Because <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they were so well rehearsed that I think they just thought, God, he must say this every day to whoever wants to listen, <laughs> so there you have it. Yes. So did, I mean, at that stage, what were you, what were you like as a band keeping it together? Because, the, you know, having that phenomenal success and being the darlings in the music papers and on the airwaves and on the television, mm -hmm. it's quite mm -hmm. tricky, isn't it? Because this, this is the kind of high to the band, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. With me, personally, I always like to stay, I like to stay in the background. So it didn't really kind of bowl me over, you know, I was happy and I was grateful that the band was happening and good things were happening. But I preferred to stay in, in the background. Uh, and that's when Sean and Bez kind of grew into fruition of, of these, of these, um, you know, they'd, they'd be the only ones doing interviews, um, you know, uh, and, uh, but yeah, you know, once Sean started to believe his own press, he changed a bit, which he's, he's going to be getting all this uh, all this attention thrown at you. You know, he yes. changed a little bit. 
Did you ever feel that um, you could have done with band therapy? Was, was it ever? <laughs> I don't know. Probably, yeah. I mean, later on in life, I had seven years worth of therapy, and I needed it. You know, when I came over, when I came over to LA, I started therapy, and I had seven. I went once a week for seven years. Blimey, how far down did they dig? Oh, right down. <laughs> right down. God, normally they talk about the seven year, is it the Saturn return, you know, this kind of planetary thing where mm -hmm. you, know, you have these cycles in life for seven years. So it seems quite um, apt. Yeah. Your, your therapy took seven years to, to um, sort of work through stuff. Yeah, um, it did. Did you get, just on that front, did you get to that point where you thought, actually, I feel this is this is good now. I'm, I've, I've kind of processed what I need to process. Yeah, it did. It took, like I say, it took seven years for me to get to that point. You know, after seven years, it was like, okay, I get it. All right, okay. I know, I know what to do now. Thinking about how to live, thinking how to how to accept things. Uh, so enough is enough. That was my end. End of the seven years of therapy. Yes. What was the kind of the, the what was the moment that made you think actually I really need to find something here or some form of help assistance? Well, I, I couldn't stay off drinking drugs, and I, I didn't know why. Um, you know, I've been I went in thirteen rehabs, and uh, but never followed it up with any kind of therapy. You know, after the thirteenth rehab, it was like okay, I'll do some therapy as well. You know, I'll do my detox. I'll do my three months inpatient, and then I'll, I'll do uh, I'll do some therapy, and then, like I say, it lasted seven years. Bloody hell, that is quite something, isn't it? Well, who was managing the band at this stage, by the way? Uh, Nathan McGoth. Right. Is, uh, it's son of Roger McGoth of the, the, the Liverpool the poet. poet. Yes. Yeah. Um, and was that a good relationship? Yeah, that was a great relationship. Nathan, hats off to him, he did a great job, you know, because keeping us... Us, us lots together and getting us at airports at the same time and getting us on stage at the same time getting us in the you know he did a really good job my god that that's, off, that's off to him yes absolutely i mean when i saw i hear you know interviews with lemmy talk about his hawkwind days he said one of the problems was the band there was two different camps of people taking drugs did the, the mondays manage to sort of navigate that bit okay or was that a bit of a disaster as well um, we navigated it for so long until, until uh, Gaz Whelan will tell you this, the day I started taking heroin, it was the end of it for, for Gary Whelan, the drummer, he just couldn't stand seeing me do that drug. Um, you know, and that, that took over my life for nearly 20 year period. Um, but for many years, we all kept it together, doing our own little thing and, you know, and coming together as a band. Well, late, later on, after, especially after, um, after Barbados, you know, I was heavily into, uh, heavily into heroin. Was it that period that you started? Yeah, after Barbados. Bloody hell, Barbados. I mean, on yeah. that, I mean, it's interesting, that album. Well, not that interesting, but I do love, there's one song that I think is fantastic, which, because um, Sunshine, what's it? Oh, shit, now I can't remember it. Sunshine, Sunshine and Love? Yes. 
yeah. classic song, isn't it? I do think that is, that's the one that really sort of, because the, the, the recording process, was it, because I know it's been slightly de- documented and you had the two members of Talking Heads or the Tom Tom Club, mm. was it horrendous? Was it a bit like Apocalypse Now or was it okay? I thought it was fun. I thought it was one of my favourite recording sessions. You know, it was a bit crazy, but for for writing songs in the studio and um, and getting structures of songs together, I had a blast. Me and Gary Gary Whelan, we always say it's one of our it's our favourite album. Oh, that's good. Yeah, you did you? But you didn't do the vocals in Barbados, did you? No, we got no vocals out of Sean in Barbados. He was walking around like a zombie. Um, yeah, we got no vocals. We just came back with all the music and structures of songs. And can you remember how Sunshine and Love came together? Jamming. We'd set up um, me, PD, Mark Day, Gary Whelan, and Bruce, Bruce, I can't remember his last name, but Bruce is on percussion. Chris and Tina brought Bruce with him, brought, brought Bruce to Barbados with them as to play a whole percussion for the whole oh, album. Bruce Martin. So, Bruce Martin, yeah. Um, and most of them songs came from jamming in the studio. You know, we'd, we'd be in there from 10 o'clock in the morning till midnight, you know, trying to, trying to get songs together. Was it was like, like your, because you know the Stones in 70, 71 did Exile on Main Street, recorded down in France. But did yeah. Did you have a similar vibe, did you feel, looking back at that? That was, you know, a good period of just making music. Oh, it was, yeah, it was great. It was really good, just making music. You know, that's, um, I'm working with two people that I really admire. You know, the rhythm section from Talking Heads. You know, we was working with them and, and writing songs with them. And it's like, it, it couldn't have got better for me. Yes. And with, when work, working with someone like Tina, who's obviously the bass player, do yeah. you occasionally sort of swap notes or, you know, or ask kind of, you know, bits about the instrument? Because obviously, you know, you must love it. Yeah. Uh, she took me bass guitar shopping in New York because we recorded, we mixed the album in New York. And... Um, I was over there for the mix. Um, one afternoon, it was like, I think I'll go and buy a bass guitar. Where do I go, Tina? And she took me down to this particular street in Manhattan where it was just all music shops. And we went and bought a bass guitar down there. But um, yeah, she was brilliant. She, she's amazing. Yes. That's a good one, actually. Did it feel, you know, because there's kind of a lot of publicity because of factory records, did that, how did that affect you, you know, with the bankruptcy? Oh, wow. Well, we didn't last much longer after that bankruptcy, did we? It was like, um, sorry, I'm just never quit. Not only that, um, bankruptcy, but the NME decided it was time to have a go at us, you know, build them up and knock them down type, type thing. Um, so we wasn't getting favourable reviews. And Gaz, Gaz Whelan, he, his ass went. And Paul Davis was like, we're leaving. Nobody likes us anymore. 
It was like, come on, you know, get over it. But they left and then the band split up, you know. Was it that, um, did you have a sense it was happening or did, was it a bit of a shock? Um, no, it was a shock. It was a shock. You know, I, I wasn't bothered about a few bad press reviews, you know, it wasn't bothering me. The album had just gone straight into the charts at number seven. You know, that was success for me. Um, but they didn't like it and, you know, it was time for them to say enough is enough. Yes, I do seem to remember from my memory, there were sort of comments, weren't there, in the 90s, in the music papers. Was it, I think people like Chumbawamba started getting upset with the, um, the Mondays for sort of comments that sounded a bit homophobic. But is that my, have I made that up or is that true? No, there was something put in the enemy about us not liking gay people. Yeah, that was. Which is absolute fucking nonsense. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that's when the enemy kind of turned on us. Thought it was all homophobic. Yes. Mm. So then what happens for you during the rest of the 90s? Is this when you just kind of hit a bottom bottom pit? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the only thing that mattered was heroin and crack and alcohol and, uh, and other drugs. like... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, must have been. And when, when, once we split up, uh, we'd found out that we hadn't been paying any tax. So for five years after we split up, I didn't earn a penny. Yeah, I went back to a tax man because the Mondays owed so much in tax. So I was just on my ass. I ended up back in my old bedroom at my parents' house, you know, completely on my ass and penniless. Jesus Christ. So that was your 90, the, the kind of the new Labour period when you were watching bands like Oasis and Blur and Men. Mm -hmm. You must have, mm -hmm. did you feel like, fucking hell, we should be out there doing it? Yeah, but, well, it, the timing of the Monday split, you know, completely left the gate open for Oasis to go through, you know, and bands like that. Um, but I always thought we had another album in us or another two albums in us, you know, and we might get another one. Who knows? Yes, absolutely. So then, you're, so what happens after the 90s? Did you, you go into acting, don't you, as well? Into acting? Yes. Yeah, I've done a bit of acting. I've done a bit of that. I'm not a trained actor or anything, but I do enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> my, big, my biggest moment was by um, a video I did two years ago for a guy called Machine Gun Kelly, who's just won a load of awards over here. Um, that was my biggest part of acting. Blimey. I, w I was just doing an interview with the, the guy from The Very Things and The Cravats, and he, when, when the band didn't sort of continue and he needed money, he went into acting for a, quite a few years and said... It kind of paid his mortgage, really. So there you go. So was your, was your um, drug taking, did that sort of consume the 90s into the O years until the band reformed? Yeah, it did. Yeah. It took me many years of trying to stop. You know, and I, I, I wasn't able to stop. I didn't know how to stop. Even though I've been in 12, 13 rehabs, I still didn't know how to stay stopped. Um, but yeah, up into the, into the nurses. 90s and nurses, I was just um, I was just in my own world of uh, hazy drugs. 
Yes, that was not, that's probably the lost years. How did it feel when the film came out, 24-hour party people? Mm. Oh, it was great. It was really good. It was fantastic. I thought they did a really good job. It's not taken it too, too seriously. There's a comedy element in there. And um, I, was on, I was on the set quite a few times during the making of the movie. So I could tell it was going to be good, you know, um, just, just through hanging around on the set. And great. did it feel like that helped the sort of the Mondays sort of get their story, not rewritten, but to sort of put them back into the sort of public arena? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, how old is that film now? Is it like is it 20 years old? 20 years. I know it's frightening, isn't it's it? It's 20 years old now. Easy, yeah, easy. and people coming up to me saying that film's brilliant. No, yeah. I know. Everyone loves it, don't they? So when mm. did the call come When to reform? Was there ever a sort of sense? That, did you ever feel the band was going to reform or did you think there's just no way? Um, I, did I think? I hoped it would. I didn't, didn't know if it had come off or not. But I always had hope that, um, you know, we, we would be able to finish off um, some unfinished business. So, yeah, um, I always hoped it would get, we would get back together. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. And how did you feel about Black Grape? Did that feel quite strange, seeing Sean still sort of in the public arena? Well, I was in Black Grape to start off with. Um, it was me, Sean and Kermit, and Jed, the drummer. And Wags hadn't even joined by then. Wags was the guitar player. So I was, I was involved in writing early Black Grape stuff. Um, it just, I just couldn't work with Sean anymore. You know, he was just, um, he was out of his mind and I was out of my mind. You know, and I, I just couldn't work with him anymore. So my part in gesture, we had a fight in his house where we was rehearsing these Black Grape songs. We had a fight and I threw a chest of drawers through his living room window and walked out. So, um, and, and you know, he carried on with Kermit doing the Black Grape stuff and no one could have been more pleased for him than me. when Because, you know, Tony Wilson had even written Sean off saying, oh, Oh, there you go. You, you just, I think you just oh. hit the button there. But you're still there. Don't go away. Keep it breezy. Oh, how do I get you back? How do I get you back? I just, I just put... Um, yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so that's good. And how did your and how were your parents coping, seeing their two boys, children, sons, coping mm -hmm. through, through this? Did that sort of... Was that... How did they respond to all this? Um... Just very supportive, you know. There was they helped me with, um, you know. I ended up homeless, you know. They, but they invited me back in their house. It was very supportive of me getting off drinking drugs. Always have been. Um, but even though when I was messing up, they were still supportive, you know. You got to hang in there, haven't you? You've got to mm -hmm. hang in there. So yes. So then, when you reformed. Did that feel like a quite a big thing? Because I did an interview with a member of um, James and I remember him saying when they, they decided to split up at the height of their kind of moment in the 90s and they mm. were just sitting around a swimming pool in Spain and he said, look, 
we all hate each other. Can we just split up? And everyone, yeah, and everyone just agreed. And that was it for about 10 years. <laughs> I mean, and they just were all kind of relieved because I think they just kind of like, oh, we can't do this anymore. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, did it feel like that moment when you decide to reform, how does that sort of work? Well, you, when, we, when we eventually reformed, you've got to put shit behind you. You know, some of that, you know, people hold, people's holding grudges that was 25 years old. You know, it was ridiculous. It's like you've got to put that stuff behind you. And, um, you know, it's the music business. You know, it's not just music. There's a business side to it. You know, if you want to make some money, then you've got to do some some good business decisions. And, and we all decided that, you know, it was a good business decision to carry on and, and carry on and let bygones be bygones. Yes, absolutely. And did you, I mean, were there any dynamics within the band that needed more work on it? I mean, how did, how did it cope with Sean, you know? And, and... Um, you know, Sean doesn't travel to shows with us anymore. It's like when we got back together, it was like I said, I cannot travel on a bus or, or a van with Sean. And he was saying the same thing. Sean was saying, I can't travel on a bus or, or, or in a van with them lot. You know, it's the things had got fractured. Um, but everything works out fine. You know, we don't have to hang around with him all day. He doesn't have to hang around with us. But we put on a really good show. Yes. And did it feel a bit like, without sounding too new agey, <laughs> it mm. will do, did it feel kind of like a bit of a healing process for yourself as well as other members of the band, you know, in the sense, you know, because obviously when you have a big fallout and especially with a band with so much at stake, it must mm. really dig deep. But to be able to come back and somehow make things work as best you can even though you have to tra travel separately it's a small price to pay let's face it did that feel mm. like oh actually this is this has been good for me yeah well you know we'd all changed over the years and um we're actually playing better and doing better shows now than we was back in the day you know because people had kind of matured a bit you know forgiven each other for some things that was said. Um, but it was, yeah, you know, it was a great moment to realise that we can still pull it off. You know, we're a good live band. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And did, um, I mean, how do you end up in LA, by the way? Oh, uh, that was on my trip to my 13th rehab. You know, I'd, I'd done rehabs all over the world and, and I was in... Um, I was in New York DJing at this club and I relapsed again on vodka and I woke up the next day and said to my wife, I said, I can't go back to England or else I will die this time. If I go back to England, I'm going to die. So we found this rehab in, in, in Los Angeles on Venice Beach. And uh, the day after my relapse, I was in there and that was like 14 years ago. And after doing three months in, in, inside this rehab, it was like, I don't want to go back to England. Well, I don't have to go back to England. Sell the house and we'll live in Los Angeles, bring the kids, and we'll start a new life. And that was 14 years ago. I mean, it's worked. Are you the only member yeah. outside the UK of the band? 
No, Gary Whelan, the drummer, has been in, he lived in Australia for 10 years, and I think he's been in uh, Canada now for 16, 17 years. So he's in Canada. Blimey, that is, that is mm-hmm. good. And how do you sort of make it work in, in sort of just going to LA? I mean, is there sort of lots of paperwork and actually how do you survive? Oh, right. Um, well, I got a green card. I applied for a green card. Well, your fingers over the mic. Oh, is it gone again? No, that's okay. Yeah, I, I applied for a green card on the grounds of my special ability of playing a bass guitar. Yeah. And I got a green card. I'm a permanent resident. I've been for years. God, that's um, fantastic. As far as the Mondays, you know, um, me and Gaz just go to England the week before the show. And then we have three days rehearsals and then do the show and fly back. And it works um, perfectly. Yeah, it works, works great. And is it now, is, am I right to think that Alan McGee is your manager? He is, yes. He is. Has been for, I think it's four years now. Fantastic. Four years. And he's doing really well. He's, uh, he's keeping us all busy. It must be fantastic to be able to still do it. So what are the plans for your future, you know, the future of the band and, and sort of recording and, and live dates? Live dates? Oh, no, we've just had another two cancelled yesterday for um, July and August. I sh- we should have been in England this year um, doing like six or seven festivals. But now it's um, now been more or less wiped out um but in november december we're doing that arena tour with james fantastic the manchester yeah. strong manchester playing can't wait for the manchester show there us and james that'll be i mean it was sold out within like minutes the manchester show so november december we're doing the james thing and i think we might be able to get a couple of festivals in before before the end of summer depending yes. on if uh, England opens up again. And how did um, the, the Mondays go down in America? We was doing great. We was doing really well. Um, you know, last time we toured, I can't remember what year it was, but we was, we was playing to like 5,000 people, 5,000 you know, venues. And um, we went down really well. It was really getting into us. And then, you know, then it all went wrong. <laughs> so Sean's got his book out coming, uh, coming out this year. Have you read it? I've, no, I've only ever read bits of his book. It was like, Sean, Sean, Sean's very good at exaggerating. So <laughs> I've read bits of his book and I had to put it down because I know what the exaggerations are. <laughs> I, I know where he's making things up. So, um, but I have heard some of his new album. He's, he's got his solo album coming out and that's brilliant. That's really good. Yes, that's mm-hmm. amazing. And is your mum still with us? Mum's still around, yeah. I should have been there this week, actually, but I just had to cancel the flight. Uh, I should have been over at staying with her. Uh, Mum's still around. Dad died two years ago. Um, and she's still... She's still bouncing around like Tigger. She's nearly 80, 80 years old, I think she is. Yes, well, uh, my parents are still, they're in their age mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Slightly bouncing, slightly staggering. They're on, they're on a lot of uh, 
my dad's on a lot of <laughs> warfarin, blood pressure, those sort of things. Oh, I think that's right, what, right. Happens, what happens when you get into your 80s. I mean, if you could have said something, say, to your 16 or 18-year-old self starting out in the world that is rock and pop and indie, is there anything, are there some kind of key little points that you've, you'd have just said to them? Um, yeah, you know, just the wisdom that you've built up over the decades. Um, I'd say don't lose the passion. You've got to have passion and self-belief and um, there's no need to do heroin. There is no need. Can you, does that moment still haunt you when you first tried it? Yeah. Yeah, because I liked it so much. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh no, this is going to lead to bad shit, this. And he did do. Yeah. But it was, it was perfect. It was a perfect drug for me at the time. It was like, every, especially with the band splitting up, and it was like, oh, I can forget about everything. And that's what it did. Yes. Because how come, you know, you were, you know, Uncle Dysfunctional, that was an album you weren't on, was it? No, I didn't do that. I kind of left again by that time. Just that you were just not, was that the last thing you needed to be involved with? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, a lot of it was down to mine and Sean's relationship, you know. Um, I'd gone off him again and he'd gone off me. We wasn't on the same page. And uh, it was much easier for me to pull out of the band and just put my feet up. Yes. So is it the case now? Did you sort of feel that it was important to bridge your relationship with each other for many reasons, including for your parents? Yeah. Yeah, definitely for the parents. Um, they, you know, me and Sean were close for most of our life. Very, very close. Um, so when we fell out and wasn't speaking to each other, you know, it was it was wasn't really fair on the parents. But um, you know, they you know, they've um they 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 was happy that we made up. Yes, well, it's a nice point. It's nice to uh for them if nothing else actually. But there you go. And do your children enjoy being in LA? They love it, yeah. Absolutely love it. My God. They didn't do it first. They just wanted to go back to England for the first two years. And I'm saying, no, you'll get used to it. You'll get used to it. And now they love it. Yeah. Amazing. Well, there you go. Well, look, Paul, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. This has been amazing. Pleasure. And, pleasure, um, pleasure. and I really hope it all goes well. But like I said, you know, I've got fond memories of that uh, New York New Order gig and also the Glastonbury one. So yeah, hopefully you'll cool. be back in Norwich one day soon. Yeah. Hopefully. Love Norwich. I've got cousins in Norwich. Have you? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, well, look, take care and thanks again for your time. No problem. Take Enjoyed care. it. Thanks, Thank Paul. You. Take care. Bye. 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 And that, dear listener, is um, how you finish a conversation. Very concise. Well, not. Anyway, a massive thank you to Paul Ryder for giving me the time for that interview that's it really just go to their website and find out more information or facebook page and um, hopefully they'll be touring again very soon this has been the c86 show i'm david Eastor. if you want to contact me you can on facebook twitter instagram do c86 show um these yeah make it nice and positive otherwise don't bother and also these have all been archived these interviews and you can find those on spotify itunes 
and Podbean. That's it, really. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.